Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I have a title this morning that takes some explaining, but uh, I want to equate holiness and unity. Holiness is unity. And we're reading from just the opening of the book of Corinthians, and this is the basis that Paul is going to argue for the unity in the church of Corinth. In Japan, there are little gods. They're called Jizos, or tiny Buddhas, and they're scattered in many places. And the Shinto shrines, if you nearly every little clump of woods or any kind of mountainous place or place of beauty, you can go out and there be a little Shinto shrine and place to worship. When the kids were in school and swimming season started, uh, they had the priest come and uh, throw salt and I guess sake in the swimming pool uh, to drive out the water demons. Not a religious thing, just to swimming safety. They wouldn't want the demons drowning the children. They explain. Um, on the Setsubun is the day that actually they drive the demons out of the children. And our daughter, it kind of caused some problem in the school because they came to her and they said, well, tell us the demons that you have. And Aaron, our oldest, said, well, I don't have any demons. And they said, yes, you do. <laughs> and so they insisted that she name a demon and she came home very upset from school uh, because they'd, in, they'd tried to drive demons out of her. Uh, if you buy a new car, you should probably go to the shrine and you want the priest to you know, bless the car. You don't want the demons crashing your car. If you build a new house or even a bank or any commercial building, they'll have the Shinto priest come and he'll bless the ground and, you know, make sure that there are no evil spirits there. We had a member of our church there in Japan and he was building a house and we, you know, we didn't do any kind of I didn't drive out demons or anything, so he thought, well, mate, could we bury a Bible and, you know, put it in the cement there? And, um, the point being that in a traditional culture, so the society is steeped in religion. There's hardly any activity that you do that is not in some way tinged with some religious meaning. And I think this is very much the situation in Corinth. Uh, it is a city, you know, that it uh, serves as a trade route between the Aegean and Ionian seas. And so you know the story. There's a little isthmus there. and they. Uh, but so it's a city that's filled with idols and idolatry. Um, that one of the great temples uh, is there. And I'm going to come back to that and talk about it. They had the uh, Isthmian Games because of the Isthmus there, but the, that itself was a, a, a religious festival. The Melusertes, I think is the way you say it, uh, is the, they found his body. It's the body of a god that was supposedly founded there, found there. Now, part of this story we got to retell because the city was actually destroyed 
And it's only about 160, 165 years old when Paul comes back in the rebuilt city. In many ways, it may be parallel to the age of the United States. Uh, so Julius Caesar rebuilds it, right? right? In fact, before his assassination. But the goddess Aphrodite, there was a temple there. And this is the... When I was in school, this was always the story that they told about Corinth, that there were... Uh, you know, a thousand temple prostitutes because of the merchants, you know, and the seamen and everybody, and they would converge on this temple. Uh, by the way, it's not unlike our great city of Moberly, right? I, I was very eager. I'm always eager to find out the history of places, and so I, I immediately went and bought a history book, and the only one I found about Moberly I, I don't know if you know this, that, it, that Moberly was renowned as a center of prostitution. Uh, I couldn't find any. I'm sure it's renowned for something other than that. But that was... Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, Laius was the most famous prostitute. And, that, of course, the idea was that you would, she would charge tremendous amount of money and so the saying arose that not everyone is able to go to Corinth. That is, it's a city that uh, not everybody could uh, withstand the luxury or the, the expense. But it was notorious for debauchery. And so to Corinthianize was a way of saying, well, you're a debauched person. You're a wanton person. Now, I'm saying all this and we're not quite sure though, uh, you know, C.K. Barrett says that no, actually the, the temple and all of that was gone by the time Paul was there. But nonetheless, we get the idea that the city uh, is especially corrupt and maybe just from being a seaport city, from being located where. And, and if you just look at the letter itself, that Paul is trying to bring about the transformation of the mind or the reworking of the imagination of these people. And this is going to be the, the point of the letter. But he begins the letter, and this is what I want to read this morning, is just the opening of the letter where he uh, calls these people holy. He calls them sanctified. He calls them saints. Let's read... Uh, verses 1, 1 to 8. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on his name, on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he begins, he's saying, this is who you are. You're a holy people. You're saints. You're sanctified. And he's going to spend the letter convincing them to be who they are. Now, if you just would estimate how many people in this church, you know, maybe I, we were counting. I, uh, my my room, living room, we can probably hold, you know, 25 people if it's really packed, maybe 30 people. Uh, maybe the, these were house churches. So what if there's three house churches? What do we got about 90 people? Some people estimate there may have been as many. This is probably an overestimate, but maybe 200 Christians in Corinth. Uh, most people say well, it's probably a lot less than that. So there's a few house churches, maybe 30 people in the churches. And Paul is describing then these people as the means of redemption of the world. Think of the Jewish holy place, the Holy of Holies. This tiny room was pictured as the center of the cosmos in which God dwelt. In a way, these people called to be the temple, the holy place, the sanctified people of God are of cosmic importance. In other words, he's going to, they're a tiny people overwhelmed by this decadent city and yet Paul is calling them to a re, to envision themselves in a very different way. He calls them holy and holiness, saints, sanctified, all the same root word. They're a new temple, a new body is the way. And he calls them, you know, they're the ecclesia, the called out. And so the great effort of the Old Testament was to create a people who would recognize the sacred and the profane and divide those out. And of course, uh, that was a long, slow process. And in the Old Testament and here, holiness stands over and against. It's over, it's almost the opposite of idolatry. For most of the history of Israel, it, it, it has the idea, the connotation of, you know, you're not idolaters. And that's the problem, of course, they're going to face in this idolatrous city. If you go back and Paul it seems to be echoing Leviticus when, or uh, Exodus when God is speaking to Moses. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy for I the, of the Lord your God am holy. Why are we holy? Because we're related to God. Because we're, you know, we're in Christ. We're co-participants in the Trinity. You shall every man fear his mother and his father. Keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord. Turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods. As Paul will say it in Corinthians 12 too, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols and the idea being these dumb idols that could neither listen they could not hear they could not speak and they're contrasted with the living God who speaks in and through the gift of his Holy Spirit uh, this gives the reason why the Corinthians you know they need instruction as to spiritual gifts their past heathen state they had no experience of intelligent spiritual powers. 
When blind, ye went to the dumb. And so the thing which characterizes idolatry, and I think this is not just idolatrous people, but it is the universal problem illustrated into idolatry, is disunity. And the thing that characterizes holiness is unity. And this disunity then would be within the self, with God, the world. And the thing, the unity would likewise then be a universal realization of unity in Christ. As it says in in, uh, John, when Jesus is describing the Trinity and our participation in the Trinity. In John 17. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Same word, right? That they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask, and this is the high priestly prayer, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me, through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you hear it? Who is God? God is unified. God is a unity in Trinity. The mission of Christ, why, you know, the mission of the church is to be found in the accomplishment of this unity, in the answering of the high priestly prayer. May they be one Father as we are one. The purpose, I think you could say, of every letter that Paul writes, of the very mission of Paul, is the working out of this Christian unity. And this unity, obviously, it's perceptible. And as soon as we say it, we know, well, it's not there in the mechanical unity of some sort of ecclesiastical machinery. It's something more intimate than that. In John 17, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. That there is going to be a new sort of human being. That I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. And here is the mission of the church so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, I may have been a strange child, but when I was about four or five, I hit upon my philosophical formula, my Cartesian moment. And I'm sure that all of you did the same thing. No, maybe not. I may be, I may be strange in this. I don't know, I was about four or five, and I, I remember I was out on the playground, and it hit me. I am me. Did that ever strike you? I mean, Descartes was, I think, therefore I am. But mine was much simpler. Um, It's a very powerful realization, I think, whether we're conscious of it or not. I couldn't quite grasp what it meant. But the circularity, the reflexivity of it, it seemed to contain the truth, right? I am me. I believe every child 
I believe we all go through this kind of what is called the mirror stage. We see ourselves in the mirror and it occurs to us that the image is ourselves. But is it really? Am I me, really? The image, you know, think of Narcissus here seeing his image in the water. And of course, drowning, attempting to obtain that image. Should we fall in love with it or, you know, like the little bird in the cage, see our own image as a rival? Should we spend our lives trying to attain that image in the mirror? I believe it turns out to be a futile pursuit. I believe this is behind the four time repeated I in Genesis that Paul depicts, you know, I over 20 times in Romans 7, that there's a failure to obtain the self, to get a handle on who we are. And Paul is going to address this. He says, you are no longer your own. In Japan, this is actually portrayed in the goddess Amaterasu. Down where Faith and I used to live, there was a cave. There is a cave. We went into the cave. And Amaterasu, who is the sun, the sun goddess, uh, got angry and went into the cave and hid. And the only way they could get the sun goddess to come out, they held a mirror up. And she saw the reflection and was drawn to her own reflection in the mirror. And they got her back up in the sky. It's a depiction of the way in which perhaps we are all lured. But the mirror does not contain the truth. It turns out I am not I. I cannot say I am that I am. God can say that. But when the devil says it, it's a lie, right? I am not self-contained. I did not originate with myself. Our life is not our own. Do you not know, Paul says in chapter 6, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I believe that this alternative picture that is given to us in the New Testament is the key to being an alternative sort of human being. James will refer to it as the mirror of the word. He tells us that in Christ there is the possibility, the New Testament tells us, of seeing ourselves rightly in the mirror of Christ, in the mirror of the word. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. Holy people are a unified people. Unholiness corrupts, and corruption divides and kills. Paul says this in chapter 6, in the same place he describes the unity. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? And then he goes through the list. You know, do not be fornicators. Do not be idolaters. And he lists a series of things. Such were some of you, but you were washed. And the picture is baptism. And Paul's going to talk a lot about the cleansing nature of baptism. You were sanctified. 
He's saying this is who you are. You are holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And of course the Holy Spirit is connected to holiness, is connected to this sanctification. Now the other thing here that throughout Scripture, when it talks about unholiness, it will always talk about violence, corruption, and disunity and oppression. In Leviticus, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between the clean and the unclean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, for them saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery. What's the problem going to be in the Corinthian church as they fall into unholiness? There's going to be this division between the rich oppressing the poor. There's going to be uh, you know, the privileging of high class over low class. He says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Holiness will mean we stand in the gap. It will mean there's no oppression of the poor. There's no lying. There's no false prophecy. Those who stand in the gap, those who represent Christ to the world will be priests. Paul says we are ministers of reconciliation. Here is the bridge. His holiness denotes who he is, his innermost essence, the ultimate unity. And as we participate in who he is, we participate in that unity. Don't you know that you're a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? God will destroy him if you destroy that temple. And this is what you are. You know, the long, this is, you could just go through passage after passage in the New Testament. What is the point of salvation? What is the point of being a Christian? What is the point of the church? He is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law and commandments. He came and preached peace to you who were near and or who were far away and to those who were near. We all have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers. Ephesians chapter 2. To be the temple, to be this holy place, to be this new family corresponds in Chapter you know, uh, 5, verse 7, Paul describes it. Clean out the old leaven 
Verse 7, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, but with new leaven. What is this new leaven? Or the old, it is malice and wickedness. Put out the old leaven. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I did not write at all with, to, to mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous that you're to disfellowship. But there is to be no fellowship like that of the immoral, the idolaters, the swindlers. They have no place in this holy place. And so Paul's describing this new cultic community. And the two practices that he's going to focus on, baptism, you were baptized. He says this in Corinthians, he says it in Romans. Now realize what it means. Um, For by one spirit, he says, we were all baptized into one body. There is a unity created from diversity. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And so he's going to describe this diversity of gifts in a unified body. And then the other is the communion supper in which he's going to describe. And of course, the the communion, the supper that they're eating is causing disunity. He says, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so through these two sacraments, through these two cultic practices that are to define the way of our life, a new creation emerges. He says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Here is a new kind of humanity. Old things have passed away. Realize it. In other words, they're passing away. They should have passed away, but you need to realize it. New things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the purpose of being a Christian? What is the purpose of the church? What is salvation in Christ? To bring about reconciliation. To bring about unity. The mission of the church, we might say, is just to be the church, to be Christian, to be followers of Christ. And in doing that, the united and holy community in the Messiah becomes, that is who we are. You know, Paul will describe it as, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Oh, this is Peter. Uh, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of those of the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 
That's what we're to be about, is being this people, being this holy people, this sanctified people. That's who we are, now let's realize it. Now Paul, in the beginning, he calls himself, you know, he knows of other apostles, other evangelists like himself. He never suggests that that's everyone's calling. He sees the church itself as the powerful sign to the watching world. The church is a new way of being human. And this is the witness that is given. We might say that the first task, our first task, is to be the church. The servant community. Um, As Stanley Horowitz has put it, Such a claim may well sound self-serving until we remember that what makes the church... The church is faithful manifestation of the peaceable kingdom in the world. As such, the church does not have a social ethic. The church is a social ethic. And that's then to be, and that's, I think that Paul is going to start out here. You are a holy community, and now he's going to call them to realize that. Let's sing our hymn of Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.